0: Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis.
1: And I'm Larry Kraft, we're co hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Abby. Hey, Larry. So this episode, this is one that you really, you identified from prior contacts and things that you know. So tell us what we're going to be hearing today.
0: When we started thinking about different cities, different places that we wanted to have conversations with folks, Alaska jumped out immediately as, as a place that I was interested in because it is a place that we think about as deeply rich with natural resources and this kind of amazing environment um, that is, there's that juxtaposition of this very heavily extractive economy that's happening there. Um, And the state has become dependent upon money that... um, comes from extraction of oil and, and gas there, which is harming the other resources that it has. It's harming the fisheries. Um, it's one of the fastest warming places, certainly in this country, if not the world, and is experiencing a lot of firsthand climate impacts. And so it's just it just has all of these different pieces happening. And there's a lot of activity around climate action. And Anchorage had this great climate action plan that i was reviewing and so i just really wanted to you know reach out and see what's going on in alaska and so i reached out to some folks at the at the city as well as i had just seen this um webinar where uh, kendra kloster was was speaking and reached out to her and talked talk to them about some ideas they might have for what this episode could look like let's hear it let's do it All right, to kick off our first city episode, we have an incredible panel of guests from Anchorage, Alaska. These amazing women will speak to the collaborative forces working together to drive a just transition and how these efforts are rooted in practices of Alaska Native peoples. Welcome, everybody. Um, We're going to have each of our guests introduce themselves, but first I want to turn it over to Ruth Miller for a land acknowledgement.
2: Hello everyone, my name is Ljavaiq Isen and my English name is Ruth Miller. And I am so, so proud to be calling in today from the lands of the lower Tanana Dine. Um, in the interior of Alaska, what's now called Fairbanks, but my family is from the Lake Clark region, and I live and work on my homelands, Dena'ina lands of Degeikak, otherwise known as Anchorage, Alaska. And when we do a land acknowledgement, we're not just honoring the ancestral and perpetual relationship that our Indigenous peoples have with our lands and with their places that raised them, that created their cultures, that dictated their languages, but we're also sharing a commitment. We're sharing a promise to the ever-present protection of those lands and the need for responsibility and respect of those lands and waterways that we're all honored to be guests on. So chicken for giving me the opportunity to acknowledge this beautiful land that I am so honored um, to be present on today.
0: It's beautiful. Thank you.
3: Hi there. Um, my name is Polly Carr. Um, I am, uh, uh, calling in uh, in this show from um, the unseated Dena'ina lands in Anchorage, where I live with my family. Um, I am a, a mother of a 10-year-old daughter, and uh, she is a driving force in the work that I do and why I am uh, committed to uh, working with the other incredible guests of the show on um, climate solutions And ensuring Alaska remains one of the best places to to live and raise a family. I run the Alaska Center and the Alaska Center Education Fund and we are working towards a thriving just and sustainable Alaska for future generations. Thanks for having me.
4: Hello, my name is Kendra Kloster. I appreciate being here with everyone today. Um, I'm calling in from Denina Lands in Anchorage although I am originally from Wrangell and Juneau down in Southeast Alaska. I am first and foremost a mother, my most favorite role in life. I have two kids. I am also the executive director of Native Peoples Action and Native Peoples Action Community Fund. I am Klinget in German. So my family is originally from Wrangell and then my dad's side of the family is from Yakima, Washington. Again, appreciate being on here and look forward to a really good conversation about climate and what's happening here across Alaska.
5: Hi, my name is Shaina Kilcoyne. I'm calling in from the beautiful Danaina Lands in Anchorage. I'm the Energy and Sustainability Manager for the Municipality of Anchorage. I live here with my husband, and we both work on advancing clean energy and conservation for the future of Alaska. Thank
0: you for having me. Thank you and welcome to all of you. Uh, I wanna start about talking about how indigenous communities have been taking care of the earth for many millennia. Ruth, what does it mean to restore balance and move back toward a more reciprocal relationship with the earth? In my work
2: as a climate justice organizer, we often incorporate the framework of a just transition. And a just transition refers to the transition that we must make from an extractive economy based on exploitation of workers and extractive capitalism and a legacy of colonization towards a regenerative economy that's based on reciprocity, community care and wellness um, and deep, a fundamental respect for our earth and natural spaces. But this transition incorporates not just economy as many interpret it to mean today, but economy as management of home. So that means we need to investigate not just um, economic models, but also uh, how we engage the military or choose not to engage the military, what um, is at the foundation and core of our educational systems, what we expect from our labor force, how we incorporate healthcare and uh, economy of care um, to really permeate not just the various sectors of what contributes to an economy, but the ideology that undergrids the economy. So in our indigenous communities, this is very familiar because we're not just moving towards a visionary future into the unknown of what this harmony and this these new structures of interrelationship must look like. They're in fact very familiar to our indigenous peoples. They are founded on the reciprocity And the uh, mutual investment in community and one another that um, allowed indigenous communities to thrive for millennia uh, and continue to thrive today. So when Just Transition began planting its seeds here in Alaska, we realized that even those words, we have to make them our own if they are to uh, sprout and eventually blossom here in our homeland. So in honor of the Lord Tene upon whose lands we were initially gathering, we chose to um, use the words kotrejne, which in the Benti language means remember forward. We choose to remember forward, to bring the lessons of our ancestors and the teachings of the indigenous stewards and leaders of these lands into our advocacy and activism across all sectors and across all industries as we think about how to reinvigorate all aspects of our economy towards a just transition.
1: I recently saw a report from the Environmental Defense Fund. Alaska's warming twice as fast as the rest of the U.S., three degrees Fahrenheit in the past 60 years, and winters are even twice as warm, six degrees Fahrenheit warmer than um, than the past 60 years. What are the impacts of that? What has that done? How's it all connected? Kendra, maybe you could start.
4: I think I want to first start off and saying when we're looking at Alaska, you know, for those who may not be really familiar, you know, I I often think about this map that we pull up um, where we take Alaska and we kind of put it over the rest of the United States. And we see the Aleutian chain starting over in California all the way to southeast, which is touching Florida and then how big we are in between. So thinking about the landmass of Alaska. And thinking about the different climates that we have here. Um, I mentioned I come from southeast. Um, there's the Tongass National Forest. And so I grew up in a rainforest. Although where Ruth is, you've got tundra lands. And you go even farther up north to Utyavik, formerly known as Barrow. We think about the lands there and then all the way over you know, to the Aleutian Chain, We are a very big state with a vast amount of lands and waters. And so we're looking at many different issues happening across Alaska. And so I just want to make sure that this is fully understood. So when I'm thinking about Southeast and the climate change that we're seeing happening there, um, there's been times at home where we've seen fires and droughts in, in Southeast, which has really been unheard of. And then just a couple years ago, we had massive amounts of fires all around Anchorage and up in Beaver. It, it was all over the state, and we were just really waiting for rain. And, and then we're also looking at the, when we're looking at winters, and we really think about our, our hunting, fishing, and gathering, our seasons are changing. And so as, as our seasons are changing, we're having to change on how we hunt, fish, and gather so we see these impacts and we feel these impacts so much into our livelihoods the fish where our waters are warming we're seeing fish dying off in unprecedented numbers Um, i was home in Wrangell um, just a couple years ago and the berries didn't even come out they shriveled up before they even got you know able to pick because it was so warm we're seeing ice up north that is melting at unprecedented rates. So in areas where you're used to using the rivers as like ice roads and we're going out on ice and normally when it would be frozen in this time of year, people are falling through because of the, the changing of, of our seasons here. And so we're feeling this um, in many different ways and in many different forms all across Alaska and so when we're coming together here, we really know the impact of having to work in partnership and having to address these issues very head on so we can ensure that we have this lifestyle that we not only are accustomed to, but it's more than that. It's it's the our traditional way of life is at stake. You know, I think about my kids and I want to be able to take them you know out fishing but it's changed so much so how are we protecting our fisheries and we need to make these changes now and we have to do it together as a group and really going forward with these indigenous values
1: Alaska is also you know known for having a large supply of oil right what what tensions does it raise that you have An economy that sometimes that is often based on extracting oil and and fossil fuels there. And, And how does that impact the way people think about climate impacts?
2: I would just begin with a reminder that oil was not our Alaska's only economy, and Alaska had many forms of productive and lucrative economy that was successful in forms other than capitalism. And so when we identify oil as our current state money maker, we have to remember that it's only making money for a, an elite few. And it is coming at a huge uh, environmental and humanitarian price. And so when we begin to reframe Alaska, not as an oil rich state, but as an extractive oil colony, We realize that most of the profits from this extractive industry are not staying in state, are not uh, trickling down to our laborers and our communities. But instead, we are seeing the poisonous and toxic impacts of these industries, not just as they pollute our lands and waters, but also as their pollutants and petrochemicals leach into the bodies of our fish, our caribou, and contribute to Severe respiratory illnesses and cancers amongst our people, infertility, and uh, and mental deficiencies in our youth. And so, to to see oil as you know an economic boon for Alaska, it is only the process of taking oil out of Alaska to to service extractive capitalism that you can possibly view it as as a profit.
4: And I just want to add on to that a little bit too, where we're looked at as, you know, this oil state right now, you know, as you mentioned in your question. And in the past, you know, we've had our state budgets that have been based off oil revenue. And now that is not the case anymore. We need to look forward. We need to be diversifying our economy and looking forward to the future. And as Ruth just said so nicely is this wasn't our economy beforehand. And this is not the, this is not Alaskan. This is not our only story. We have so much more into the future. And right now, as we're looking at, you know, our state government is basing our budget off of a resource that is not going to be around and not planning for the future. It's only dipping into savings to put us into debt. So this is, great timing for these conversations of how do we really are moving forward, but also in such a way where let's look before there was an oil economy, and let's look at all the different things that the Indigenous community has had through this entire time. And so let's look forward, you know, with our Indigenous lens, and this is much of what we talk about in the Just Transition. I I think that this You know, this group that we work with here, the Just Transition Collective, has a lot of the ideas and knowledge that will move us forward in diversifying that economy.
3: I was simply going to add um, that when it it comes to story and narrative, you know, Alaskans have been told this story for, for years that we are an oil state, we're a mining state, we're a state in crisis, and we know from everyone here on the show, and um, as as Ruth and Kendra have said, from um, the indigenous peoples of Alaska and and young people in Alaska and and so many others that you know it's it's time for a new narrative uh, because we are we are a different state. The amount of our budget reliant upon um, our state budget reliant upon oil is going down. But the tension that you ask about manifests very clearly in the political sphere where um, that narrative that people have been told, it's really paralyzed political courage and bold leadership and innovation, um, especially at the state level. And that's why local government leadership is so critical and and really where um, the action is at. And and really a place to look like our our local communities, local indigenous communities and tribal governments and local municipal um, government leaders, because there is no time for the the political um, football, if you will, of climate conversations. There has to be climate action because people are seeing, as Kendra said, people die. We you know, we actually have climate deaths racking up (laughs) in Alaska and we have things falling apart. We have plans that don't have any climate um, adaptation or emergency planning within them. And so our local government leaders on the ground are, are seeing this firsthand and, and really taking leadership. So that's why this is an exciting conversation.
0: Great. Yeah. And, you know, we're seeing that countrywide, worldwide, local leaders stepping up in absence of national and, and real kind of. Global policy, right? And so, one of the tools that cities have, that local governments have, is to develop and implement climate action plans. Um, and Anchorage will focus on Anchorage specifically um, today, has a climate action plan. Could you provide some background on what the impetus was behind that and, and how that plan was developed?
5: Paulette, do you want to start, and then I can kind of talk more about how it was done because you were a part of the beginning of it.
3: I think what's important to note is that Anchorage had um, a climate action plan written years ago, that um, by the former first lady of Anchorage, um, that then sat on a shelf uh, through some administrations, and uh, it was it was really only in 2017, I think, when um, that plan got dusted off and brought back into reality. And then through the, I guess I would say leadership, which I'll I'll look to Shana next for this, but the leadership of the municipality of Anchorage, and and again, saying this is not a problem that we can push aside, Like this is something we have to be acting on. And local assembly members who then also uh, voted to approve it Um, it it was that local leadership that really, I think, set things in motion. I'll just say right now that I I really appreciated the way in which the municipality of Anchorage, um, how how government partnered with community in the actualization of this plan at every single level, um, and felt really appreciative that we were engaged. Um, I'll let Shana talk more about the the process, but I think it's a great, and and what they're doing now, which I think is even even more inspiring, but I think it's a great model for for other cities.
5: Um, It really was about that leadership. Um, I came to the municipality as the first energy and sustainability manager in quite a few years. Um, And right away our leadership said, we have to have a climate action plan. We want it now. And so the municipality and the university partnered up to develop the, the outline for the climate action plan and the structure for it. And we did quite a bit of research as into other climate action plans, other cities and what they were doing to look at best practices. There's so many examples. I mean, a climate action plan at this point is really a standard practice for, for many cities. And um, I am proud of the work that we did to incorporate input from the community. Thank you, Polly, for saying that. We pulled together, really, it was about 100 residents from Anchorage on different subject matters to um, contribute to the Climate Action Plan. And we really spent a lot of time getting out to different uh, geographies, different demographics within the community, and and introduce it and have a conversation about it and try to get their engagement in it. And I think that shows in the client, the the final product of the climate action
0: plan. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to have equity and democracy included in the plan in particular, in consideration of um, the most vulnerable populations, typically sharing the greater burden of the impacts of climate change and how this plan is is looking to, to remedy that and, and engage more people and reach more people.
5: Anchorage is an incredibly diverse city. And it was obvious to us from the get-go that equity had to be a core piece of the climate action plan. This had to be through an equity lens. Climate justice is just one piece of life. But um, it was important to us that climate change and uh, the impacts, the benefits and the costs of climate action um, need to be shared as equitably as possible. However, that is much easier said than done. It was a challenge when we went into it. We talked to other cities who were looking at equity at the core of a climate action plan. And it was really challenging. We spoke to quite a few of our leaders. Um, Polly was on our advisory committee and asked for help going through it and looking at this through the lens of equity. And we found that the level of specificity was, it was just a little too broad to really say that this action does or does not improve or, or benefit people equitably. And so now we're focused more on how can we implement the climate action plan through a lens of equity. So maybe we kicked the can down the road a little bit, but it's really in the implementation that we see where the rubber hits the road. And so we're working on developing a climate equity council that really will help us kind of review all actions that we're moving towards through through implementation. And it's it's interesting, I think, when we see this happen through climate change. Because again, shouldn't we be looking at all of our actions in local government with this lens? Um, Maybe that's something that we can improve upon with this as an example. And Polly has helped me with the Climate Equity Council. Um, She's been a part of that conversation, as has Kendra. Their feedback has been really important
0: so far. Great. We talked a little bit about the narrative of the Alaska economy being an extractive economy and changing that narrative, there are some inherent challenges there. What are, you know, some of the strategies that the plan includes to get over some of that, especially when you consider, you know, heating is primarily natural gas, Um, electric generation is primarily natural gas, but there is An abundance of other resources that are available um, in Alaska. How do you pivot from kind of the inertia of what exists to what could be?
4: I think what we can really be doing is looking to our local communities. We're seeing a lot of projects that are happening with renewable energy. You know, we have hydro that's been happening. We have just so many different examples. I know like Central Council of and Haida, they've been working on, and they're down in southeast Alaska, Mm -hmm. they've been working on a lot of climate adaptation work. And Iggyagak has had some really great things happening in their communities. So we can really be looking to our communities here in Alaska and our tribes to be getting some of the answers to be moving forward. Um, Wind farms, just an there's just a plethora of solar. Um, there's been a solar project that's happening here in Anchorage. And I think Polly could probably talk about that a little bit more. But there's there's been so much work that's been done that hasn't been highlighted. And so I really think if the state and federal government, you know, started moving away from looking at just an oil mining state and... and really pushing forward on this diversifying economy, really looking to the answers that people have already been doing, that would be an enormous start.
3: You know, it's mentioned here that like Kodiak Island is 100% renewable. As Kendra mentioned, villages, village leaders around the state have been we call it innovating, but really it's that that theme of remembering forward um, that these are just like ways of knowing how to work with the land and work with the resources um, in a way that's also really inspiring and, and problem solving. And so I think that, as Kendra said, being able to lift up these examples more and more as um, aspirational things for people to pursue in different locations is, is one way of not really combating that former narrative, but redirecting it, and also just keeping in mind that people need something positive, right, to look forward to. And so um, I think that's one, one thing that we can be doing to show this, this is happening in so many places. You know, Alaska doesn't need to be the poster child for climate destruction. It can be the the leader um, in climate solutions, and these, these local communities can. Um, I think that other ways to help people realize this, you know, at the, at the heart of it, we connect more with things and we can see a personal benefit, right, to our lives. And so the project that Kendra mentioned, Solarize Anchorage, which now there's also a Solarize Fairbanks and there's a Solarize Kenai. These are just projects similar to cities in other states um, where residents can come together in a neighborhood, bulk purchase, bulk install solar, Take advantage of the federal tax credits, which thankfully now that the federal level we have that continuing opportunity um, and bring costs down. Um, So you're talking about like helping people at their at their pocketbooks and um, also with energy costs coming down and bringing more renewables onto the grid and creating a sense of agency over your energy future, which climate change is really overwhelming. But if people can reach out and touch something as a solution, it it feels good, too. The the challenge with those projects right now is that they're not accessible to everybody. So I think that's our collective challenge as we look at these projects: is how do we make how do we make solar, how do we make heat pumps, which are um, is a fun project happening down in Southeast Alaska? How do we make these accessible to all households and all income levels? Um, so I think that like really providing these positive examples, showing people that it's possible, showing what the benefits are. So this is really helpful. And then finally, I would just say, like, we need to ask ourselves, like, why do people want to live in Alaska? It is that quality of life. It is being near like healthy water and salmon and uh, resources that sustain people. And it's um, having opportunities. It's, it's an expanding tech sector. There's there's all sorts of opportunity that we have to think about and really start framing that oil economy and that mining economy, those are archaic. There has been, they're not the way of the future, and it's not really what people want. I'll add on to
5: Polly's thoughts. Uh, When we did talk to folks about the climate action plan, you know, I was often in pretty conservative rooms and would just kind of be pretty anxious when we were delivering the climate action plan, but it really seemed like the residents in Anchorage were ready for this and are behind this, and are excited because, yes, we have this past that is an extractive past that we're all familiar with, and that has really provided great things to our community and so I'm grateful for that that has helped build our cities, but um, you know there's a lot of opportunity here, and when we talk about um what kind of technology advancements there are. We have the opportunity to do a lot here and to diversify our resources. For instance, for energy efficiency, it's shown that we can save about 25% on our buildings across the board. We're really, we can focus on architecture and, and advanced architecture here. We've got the Cold Climate Housing Research Center doing really amazing things. We're at the cutting edge, on the northern edge of the United States. And I think that that's an important thing that we bring to the table like Polly said, there's plenty of opportunity here for solar. If you come to Alaska in the middle of the summer, there is no dark. And so we we do have, we have wind. We have the second greatest coastline, I think, in the nor- in North America. So, you know, as far as clean energy opportunities, we have those, and those are jobs that are here that can't be outsourced.
1: That's great. It strikes me being, um, being in Minnesota, listening to some of the areas you're researching and educating people on heat pumps and cold, call cold housing research, that stuff that we could, we're, we're dealing with and learning as well, just you probably at a little bit accelerated level. So I want to turn and ask you about elevating youth voices. We had a lovely interview with um, Emily Taylor, who'll be on a, one of the youth episodes we have. But I've been struck over the years with how well I've seen Alaskan youth voices elevated in the climate movement. And um, so, can, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: The elevation of our youth voices is one of the most central aspects to our indigenous cultures, but also our way of life. Here in Alaska, whether you're indigenous or non-native, we understand the importance of passing on knowledge, of teaching generationally, and investing in youth as they grow into leaders. Uh, whether that means you know learning from your grandma how to tan a hide, or learning from your dad how to fix your plumbing, living in Alaska seeds the need for uh, co-reliance And in our indigenous cultures, you know, we believe that it's our youth and our elders that are closest to creation and therefore our most precious and our most wise. And so when we consider processes and policies to steward a recovery of our state, to to steward the assurance of an equitable future, of course, it's our youth that know how to do that best because, because it is they who will be leading that charge and moving into positions of community leadership and elected leadership and so we work across our organizations represented here and beyond to make sure that youth are not only elevated but really invested in that they're mentored that they have opportunities to share their stories and validate their voices not just you know parroting what they've been taught but to deeply reflect on their life experiences and all that has gone into forming their attachments with this place and and seeing that as power, seeing that knowledge and that wisdom as strength uh, so that they begin to identify themselves as leaders. That is how we make our movement sustainable by not only investing intergenerationally, but by making them holistically supportive and loving so that we're caring for our youth, not just by making demands of them and throwing them into leadership unprepared, but by loving them, by treating them with tenderness, by being good aunties and uncles by thinking about how we as a community can support our youth and elevate them to lead for the next decade and the next generation.
3: Yeah, and I'll just um, add on to that. And, and M. Taylor is phenomenal. I'm so, so glad and really looking forward to hearing her words directly. Young people in Alaska uh, have been rising and, and meeting this occasion for years. Um, in 2003, they brought 5,000 teenager-only signatures from 150 villages and cities in Alaska to Senator Murkowski's desk in D.C., asking Senator Murkowski and other members of the delegation to to seriously consider, you know, the implications of climate of climate inaction on um, cultures, you know, environment, resources, and Despite not being met back with um, equal uh, action by our elected leadership, especially the federal delegation, they've they've continued forward and they have, um, there are youth engaging in climate action plans in Sitka. Uh, I I think the, you know, the Anchorage climate action planning effort has invited youth uh, input and um, young people have been involved with that. Um, they're, they're pushing their legislature and their governors, um, asking for action, demanding climate task forces. Um, young indigenous women have, have made these demands in, in, in many other spaces. And so despite, you know, the, what I think is a very brilliant deflection by some of our elected leaders at, again, I would say at the federal level to say, oh, this is, this is something your generation is going to solve, um they they come back and they say actually no you're in power you you actually have to take that action now and the beautiful thing about young people is they don't have tolerance for iterative change and they see the intersection of climate justice and racial justice and and we do too but like they move forward so beautifully on these issues and as ruth said if we can just support them and authentically elevate their voices, and have elected leaders authentically um, recognize what they have to offer. Um, we will be in in much better shape.
1: Yeah, uh, I love that. It's it's a key theme for for us in every city we've been talking to, trying to understand the youth story there because they've had such a big role directly and indirectly in the climate movement. So it's something. Near and dear to our hearts, and and I really was struck, Ruth. By the way, you spoke about it's the elders and the youth that are closest to creation. I hadn't thought about it that way before, but that's such a profound way of, of thinking about it. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about the stuff that's happening with you is that this climate action plan has happened in Anchorage, but you've all realized that to get things done in a municipality, you also need state level action. So can you talk about how the action has either grown or evolved or how the interaction has happened from a municipal level to a state level?
2: Go Ruth. One of our most powerful and most hopeful collaborations of the past year has been the rise of the Alaska Climate Alliance, which is a multi-sectoral alliance of about a hundred different organizations with about 200 folks who pop in and off of our calls, um, working together across industry and across sectors towards um, climate action in a variety of ways. We come together under shared principles Uh, and shared commitments to begin to share information, uh, strategize around resources, um, and to begin to activate climate action in coordination with one another instead of working in silos. It is, we, Alaska often, we say, suffers from the nonprofit curse of having a lot of different people all running in their own hamster wheels and and often not getting um, very far. And so we identified this communications gap and this collaboration gap um, in our state and began to come together um, and manifest five different working groups that work in a variety of ways um, to discuss community care, to discuss renewable energy, regenerative economies, and more, um, both from a, a tactical approach, thinking about policy, um, and also from a communications and messaging approach. So we have all these different organizations that might have different goals, that certainly have different um constituencies, but align under the need for urgent action and cooperation amongst the climate community. And so through this process, we've been able to elevate um, local community issues and the lived experience of, of a huge number of community members um, with you know varied skill sets to come together in the same rooms and talk about our collective needs across the state. So I've really seen a breakdown of hierarchies in that regard um, because we see, you know, small community-based organizations, you know, that really formed out of a couple neighborhoods um, speaking at the same levels as the directors of much larger green groups that operate on a national scale but have a lot of attention in Alaska. Um, And so we are working um, always to expand our uh, tribal and indigenous presence there and to ensure that we're working under shared principles that represent the lands we're um, living in, and living on and loving and fighting for. Um, but that has been one example of a really beautiful sense of community um, and collectivity that we've been able to form in the state. And Polly and Kendra have both been integral in, in this coming together process.
4: I guess one, one addition I, I, I could add on is I think why this Alaska Climate Alliance came together and that was so important as Ruth had stated as we were working into our silos where as we come together, we can think about these solutions and collaborate and come up with policy solutions for local, state and federal and tribal and work together to make that happen. And so that's, I feel, is so incredibly important because there's many different areas that we can work on together. And it's more than just policy, but that is a piece of it. But it's how we come together and can work in our communities. And we each bring so much to the table and share this information. And I really think it's going to be a game changer in how we work on climate in Alaska
3: I, I was going to uplift that I think one of the most powerful parts of the Alaska Climate Alliance is that it um, is centering Indigenous leadership and the values of a just transition framework. Whereas prior, we had lots of groups, as Ruth said in their hamster wheels, <laughs> we had lots of groups doing climate work. So definitely in different directions and not knowing the full landscape of who's doing what who can leverage change at the local level, who can leverage at the state level. But I think it's also that that real rooting in um, indigenous leadership and just transition uh, principles, that that is the new part. And I think that makes us resilient and more powerful as a movement. Um, And it helps us develop shared language about what we're trying to achieve. Um, So when we talk about climate justice and equity, Um, we have an opportunity this time around that I think hasn't been as um, present in in the past. So I feel grateful for that aspect of it. You know, one other way, when you asked about like, how can, how are local communities helping drive state change or maybe benefiting from state change? I think that we, we still do see, a lack of, of action at the state level on, on climate change. And part of that is because of the gridlock that we have <laughs> um, with our state budget and and uh, disorganization uh, that, that we are experiencing right now at the state level. But there's a Alaska Municipal Climate Leaders cohort that we've convened um, that has, I think, at least 12. Municipalities around the state that are coming together and sharing best practices and exchanging information about how to form climate action plans, you know, what that looks like, um, what bodies you know, of work does it, does it flow through, funding, etc. And to me, in the absence of state level leadership, you can connect these municipal dots to form a network of statewide power of leaders who want to make climate action happen. So that to me is a way of, of influencing at the state level.
0: This has been such a great and rich conversation and we've really enjoyed uh, all that you had to share. I'm wondering, Ruth, if you could close us out with a vision for a just Alaska. I think any
2: vision for a just Alaska has to be rooted in justice, but not justice only for the sake of eliminating uh, the prejudice and discrimination and exclusion that we now face, but justice in service of joy, in service of shared joy across our Alaskan community. That means we can rely on community safety. We can depend that on food, in our stores and on our tables, we can uh, go to sleep knowing that we are safe and have mutual aid networks rooted in reciprocity that are culturally informed. I think justice for the sake of liberatory joy is the reminder that we all need, the gut check that we all need against policy that will deliver us through this climate crisis and through this relatively short period of extractive capitalism that has brought so much trauma and pain for all peoples, radical joy that was stripped from us through the process of colonization, settler colonization that we faced here in Alaska and across Turtle Island and so-called Canada, as well as the Western hemisphere, and, and towards a new future where we've successfully dismantled the patriarchy. <laughs> we no longer rely on one form of monetary currency to ensure that we have access to heat and water. I think centering on on the truth that we all deserve joy, we all deserve compassion for one another, we all deserve respect and reciprocity with our natural world, our plant and animal relatives is is at the core of any vision that I fight for.
0: It's really beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thank you. It's really great. Wow. That was quite an interview. What did you think, Abby?
0: I was just really, you know, found it to be an incredibly inspiring episode and and group of women who are on the ground doing amazing work to reach across communities and try to you know build upon each other to build support for rewriting Alaska's story into something of prosperity for all, something that returns back to what Alaska gives, you know, in a way that isn't harmful to the land. And it was just all around, you know, just great conversation and really rich and and thought-provoking, I think.
1: Yeah. One of the best discussions I've heard, Where you know, we often talk about Many people talk about climate justice, environmental justice. But I was struck by how all of the climate work flows from their their story, the and how the the native story and learnings just kind of infuse everything they're doing, where the, the climate work isn't an afterthought, but it's it's a it comes from that. It doesn't start there.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that. You know, that's that's the kind of shift and the kind of mentality that we all need to adopt and and take that approach for how do we want to live? How do we want to be present on this planet?
1: Yeah, I was there's so many things that I'm taking from this. The concept of remembering forward was one that just really struck me. And then when Ruth was talking about young people, which obviously is something really important to me um that the elders and youth are both so revered is be, because they're closest to creation and i thought that was just uh it's true right mm-hmm. you know elders have the wisdom of the years and youth have the wisdom of youth and not of being able just to say you know we need to do this no obstacles we need to change things so I thought yeah. that was really profound.
0: Yeah, I really, I really appreciated that sentiment. Um, you know, I think that I think one of the most powerful takeaways from this conversation is how what we're seeing, you know, across the country, across the world, and surfacing of uh, local climate action in communities is strengthened when those communities reach out to one another, when more people are involved and can start pushing and elevating that work to these higher levels to have bigger impacts that um, will continue to ripple and benefit more people. And so I think that this is just such a great place to start, I think for these conversations with cities and, why you might want to hear about what another city is doing and how you can get connected into the larger community as well as within your own community to advance this this action.
1: You, you often questions you can get at a local level is well, does what we do here matter? And I think it I think in it does. And then you can make it matter even more by sharing and questioning and listening and, and talking to others because what we're seeing already is you inevitably will find others that learn from you and that you can learn from nearby you and also, you know, elsewhere around the country. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: one last thought is Ruth is right. We've had an extractive economy for not that long in the way that we do. You know, oil and gas and and coal and these fossil fuels haven't really been a part of our human history for that long. Um, and throughout history, we go through these different changes and technological changes. And once there's something new, you know, we kind of grab onto that and we and we we go with that and we absorb that that transformation. And so this is this is a moment in time, right? So, What is what is on the horizon and just kind of the descriptions of of what everyone was talking about. Makes me believe that Alaska can rewrite its narrative. It makes me believe that the globe can rewrite its narrative. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
1: City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft. Edited by me. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.